It was a hot summer day, right after work, around 6.35 p.m. on July 28, 2008, when a woman started screaming on the third floor of a parking garage at 1875 Century Park East in Century City, Los Angeles. Now, this is not a dark, dingy parking garage. The Watt Tower parking garage is right in the middle of a high-end business district. It's adjacent to Beverly Hills, and there are lots of boutique hotels, law firms, and talent agencies there. The high-rises are linked by pedestrian plazas, so you see business people, and sometimes even celebrities, just walking around between meetings. It's a heavily populated area, very upscale, so there's not a lot of crime. An eyewitness named Edwin Rivera told the TV show American Greed, Deadly Rich that he was sitting in his car after finishing work that day. He was just about to drive out of the garage when he heard a woman scream. Then he saw someone get into a red car, a tall person wearing a black hoodie. But he couldn't see the face, couldn't even make out the gender of the person. He heard tires squealing as the car sped off and saw it racing out of the garage. He tried to follow the vehicle. He was trying to get a license plate number. After the red car sped away, Edwin got out of his car, and that's when he saw the woman. He said that at first, she was lying on the ground and looked like a pile of clothes. Edwin told Dudley Rich, quote, her eyes were the only thing that was not covered with blood. Her eyes were wide open. You could see the fear in her eyes, end quote. She started to slowly stagger toward him, begging for help, begging him not to let her die. He realized to his horror that her throat was cut from ear to ear. He tried to reassure her that she was going to be okay, while at the same time screaming for someone to call an ambulance. Several other people had witnessed this attack and were calling 911 to report a woman being beaten in the parking garage. Meanwhile, several other witnesses raced over to try and help. A doctor gave her CPR. Someone else stripped off his undershirt to try and stop the bleeding. But it was too late. The victim was 44-year-old Pamela Fayette, successful businesswoman and mother of two. She had been viciously attacked and bled to death on the floor of that parking garage in broad daylight. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Now, LAPD detectives were trying to figure out what went down in that Century City parking garage and who could have wanted to attack and kill Pam Fayette in the middle of a very busy business day, and why. They were talking to multiple witnesses, who were all very shaken up, and trying to see if they could pull surveillance video. Pam's body was brought in for testing. According to the autopsy, her body showed signs of a vicious attack. She had stab wounds everywhere, 13 in all, to her face, chest, arms, fingers, and wrist. The deputy medical examiner would later testify that Pam was probably conscious for at least two to three minutes during the attack before her throat was cut. 
She also had a lot of defensive wounds. It was obvious that Pam had fought hard for her life, to the very end. Detectives were asking questions about what Pam had been up to that day to figure out the timeline. Again, the parking garage was in a very safe and secure part of town, and there were security cameras everywhere. Pam's purse had not been stolen. Her cell phone and personal items were still there, and her car had not been taken. So detectives pretty quickly concluded that this was not a robbery gone wrong. This looked more like a professional hit. Then, police found out that Pam was estranged from her husband, 45-year-old James Jim Fayette. Pam and Jim had just come from a meeting with a lawyer. They had been discussing their upcoming divorce, which had gotten pretty ugly. They actually had a court date the next day. When police learned that the couple had been divorcing and that they had an estimated $30 million in the bank, of course, they knew that this was something they had to take a closer look at. But at the time of Pam's attack, Jim had an airtight alibi. He could be seen on the security cameras, sitting on a bench nearby. So he had not been the person who stabbed Pam in that garage. Friends said that Pam and Jim had been the golden couple. Pam was blonde and beautiful, and Jim seemed to adore her. They had been together since the late 90s, and they weren't just married, they were business partners too. They ran a gold trading business together, On the surface, they appeared to be wealthy, successful, and to have the perfect family. Pam grew up in Salt Lake City, but moved to California as a young woman, according to the Los Angeles Times. She made jewelry for a living and was a single mom living in the Mojave Desert with her daughter Desiree when she met Jim Fayette. Back then, he was working as an electrical contractor. They met, according to the newspaper, at a motorcycle ride. They had a daughter, Jeanette, and were married in 1999. The Fayeds became extremely wealthy. Together, they founded a company called Goldfinger Incorporated, which also did business under the name Goldfinger Coin and Bullion Sales. They bought and sold gold online. In addition to co-founding the business, Pam was a devoted mother to her two daughters, 17-year-old Desiree from a previous relationship and 8-year-old Jeanette, the daughter she had with Jim. They had a lovely two-story home in Camarillo, California, and also bought a 260-acre horse ranch, which they called Happy Camp Ranch in Moorpark, California. According to her daughter, Pam had big dreams for that ranch. For her daughters, it was literally a dream come true. They loved to ride horses. Friends of Pam said that she was a hard worker. She worked countless hours to help Jim get started in his business. She would work nights, he would work during the day. So they were working 24 hours to get this business going. Eventually, they evolved their business plan. They went from buying and selling gold coins to creating an online currency unit called eBullion that would allow the customers to trade with each other. The company was incorporated in 2000 in Panama and officially launched in 2001. From 2001 to 2008, eBullion grew to have over 1 million users and reserves of approximately 50,000 ounces of gold bullion. According to court documents, right before the divorce, Pam stated that she and Jim had bank accounts worth $12 million, plus stores of gold and silver in the United States, Europe, and Australia. The way the business worked was that Goldfinger didn't charge people to set up or fund accounts, which customers did by wiring money from a bank account to an e-bullion account. 
But they did charge a service fee to convert the money back into U.S. dollars or to local currency. They also charged a percentage of withdrawals. The online currency, eBullion, allowed users to hold gold and silver and to transfer their balances. The amount you had in your account would fluctuate depending on the price of gold. So, for example, a user could log onto a computer and use a password to send money, which was a big deal back then because they could do it for less than they could with a service like Western Union, and they could also avoid bank wire fees. According to Forbes, Jim claimed that his platform was completely secure and convenient. The company was also one of the first of its kind to offer customers a personalized ATM card so they could convert their e-bullion to U.S. dollars and then take those dollars out at ATMs around the world. The currency was backed by gold, which Jim and Pam kept in bullion storage vaults in Los Angeles and in Australia. According to Forbes, Goldfinger started out as a legitimate operation, but at some point, e-bullion started attracting some shadier customers, like people who were running Ponzi schemes. The magazine quoted Mark Herpel, editor of DGCmagazine.com. He said that these shadier customers who were running Ponzi schemes were the dirty little secret of companies like eBullion. Goldfinger became so successful that they started expanding. Pam asked a friend of hers, Delilah, to work for the company, and she brought her older daughter, Desiree, in as well. Investigators say that $35 million was flowing through the company every single month. Between 2001 and 2007, the company was wildly successful. Forbes quoted a friend of the couple who said that Pam told him that she was worried about the legality of Jim's business. Specifically, she was worried about the fact that he had Goldfinger issuing much more currency than he actually had backed in gold. So behind the scenes, as the company became more and more successful, Pam and Jim's relationship was starting to fall apart. In 2007, Jim filed for divorce. Pam was angry. She felt that since she had helped start the company from scratch, she was entitled to her fair share. And she told her friends that she planned to fight for what she believed was hers. After the murder, Pam's friends and family talked to detectives. They were racking their brains to figure out who would ever want to hurt Pam. She was generous and loyal and seemed to have no enemies. But because of the business dealings she'd had, police were also taking a look at her customers. The witnesses in the garage were able to give them a description of the car, a reddish SUV. They knew that the driver was tall and wearing a black hoodie. But the witness had not seen a face. But police got a break when they started to track the red SUV. They pulled surveillance video from the parking garage. And they saw something interesting on that video. The SUV had actually tried to exit through the employee exit. You've probably seen in these parking garages, there are usually several different exits. There's the public exit, which usually has the credit card slot so people can put their ticket in and make payments. But there are sometimes other special entrances and exits for monthly parking customers or for employees. But you have to use a key card to get in and out of those. In reviewing the surveillance footage, police saw someone leaned out of the driver's seat and tried to swipe a card several times, but it didn't work. Then someone else got out of the car and tried again. The person who got out of the car and went around to the other side to try to swipe the card was a tall man, and witnesses had said that the person who attacked and stabbed Pam was tall. The key card exit didn't work, 
said the car backed out and left through the regular exit. Police didn't have a great ID, but they could clearly see on the video there appeared to be three suspects in that car. So police went back. They confiscated all the tickets that were put into the machine during that time. Only one red SUV had exited. They lifted the prints from those tickets and ran them through the FBI database, but they didn't find a match. But they were able to see the license plate. They ran it and found out that the red Suzuki driven by the attackers was a rental car. And they were shocked to discover that the vehicle had been rented in a credit card under Goldfinger Incorporated, which was Jim and Pam's company. After the rental car bombshell, police had some questions for Jim. They took him in, and he spoke to them. But he completely denied any involvement in Pam's murder. He said he had rented the SUV, but he had no idea why it had been in that parking garage. Jim said that he would have zero motive to hurt his wife. He said that even though they were separated, he loved her. And even though they were divorcing, they both had plenty of money. Jim said that he could see the detective's point. He understood why they would find the rental car suspicious, but he continued to insist that he had no idea what was going on. Detectives were looking into the divorce, and they saw that it was getting ugly and bitter. According to court documents, in the divorce filings, Jim had asked that Pam be banned from the company's finances until a court-appointed mediator could be brought in. She had responded by asking to remove Jim from the business entirely. On July 29th, the day after Pam was murdered, investigators discovered that Jim was due to be ordered to pay around $1 million in spousal support and attorney fees. And that was just going to be the beginning. Now, at this point, police absolutely believe that Jim could have been involved in Pam's murder. But they had seen him on camera at the exact moment she was attacked somewhere else. So their theory was that Jim had hired someone else to commit the murder. Now they needed to find out who. On July 30th, 2008, the FBI searched Jim and Pam's ranch in Moorpark. And when they went through the small ranch house that the handyman lived in, they got another surprise. The handyman was Jose Moya, known as Joey. He had been working for Jim and Pam for years. In an ironic twist, it was actually Pam who hired Joey. He was a former gang member who basically had no job and was having a hard time. According to Deadly Rich, Jim didn't want to hire him at first, but Pam said something about everyone needing another chance. So Joey moved into the small ranch house on that property. He did errands, helped around the house, and drove the kids' places. Pam's daughter Jeanette told the TV show that they were very close to Joey. She said the kids considered him kind of like an uncle. The FBI had found weapons in Jim's property, but they found something other than guns in Uncle Joey's safe. They found a lot of gold bullion and gold bars. They estimated that there were $3 million worth of gold in that safe. Now investigators are wondering if Jim has more gold stashed somewhere else. And just when they probably thought they'd seen it all, the LAPD detectives were about to get another shot. They had the FBI waiting for them, and they were told that both Jim and Pam had been under federal investigation for a long time. Special Agent Mara Kelly of the FBI told Deadly Rich that she first heard of Goldfinger Incorporated 
when she was investigating two Ponzi schemes that were unrelated to Jim and Pam's company. She realized that some of the people committing these frauds were using Goldfinger Incorporated to store and move their money around the world, totally undetected. But the fraud went a lot deeper, according to Agent Kelly. She said that Jim and Pam had millions of dollars per month going through that company. But here's the kicker. There was no actual gold being bought. According to the FBI website, Goldfinger Coin and Bullion was basically a scam and had been for years. Users were supposed to be able to buy and sell gold and silver using e-bullion. But Agent Kelly discovered the company was operating without a license. The license would have required them to follow strict regulations and to report suspicious transactions and high-yield investment programs. Without the legitimacy of that license, they were basically just moving money around the world. According to Special Agent Kelly, they were making millions of dollars from money laundering. Agent Kelly was investigating the case with the IRS and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California. Suddenly, this case went from a small family company started on a laptop to a global money laundering investigation. Agent Kelly is now retired, but she's quoted on an FBI page about the scam as saying, that's how we knew it wasn't a gold dealer. Typically, if you're a gold dealer, you buy it and you hold it. You don't buy and sell because there's no money to be made. There should have been a lot of money coming in and little going out, unless it was to buy gold. And that wasn't happening. According to federal investigators, a lot of Goldfinger's customers were bad guys. They were doing things like orchestrating Ponzi schemes, and this was a way for them to launder their dirty money and make it look legitimate. In addition to getting paid by charging fees, Goldfinger also made money another way. When Ponzi schemes collapsed and the shady guys behind them vanished or got arrested, prosecutors say that Jim and Pam's company would take the money that had been left in their accounts. An article in Forbes summed this up too. It read, Not only did e-bullion further what appears to be money laundering and the evasion of banking regulations, but when some of the con artists using this cyber laundry got cold feet when they thought the feds were about to knock on their doors, e-bullion seems to have taken over the abandoned dirty dollars. By the spring of 2007, Pam was getting increasingly concerned. She talked to a friend of hers named Carol Nev, who had an e-currency business. Carol told her that the business needed a money transmitting license and that the fees for getting that license were really steep, around $400,000. Pam asked Jim about the license, according to court documents, but he insisted that they didn't need one. On October 6, 2007, Pam wrote a check to take that amount of money, $400,000, out in order to get their license. According to family and friends, Pam had had no idea that anything illegal was going on. And once she found out how bad it was, she wanted to make the business legitimate. Sometime around then, October 2007, Jim filed for divorce. He was angry about the fact that she took the money out of the accounts. So he banned her from the offices. He also fired her daughter, Desiree. In the divorce filings, Jim alleged that Pam was the one engaging in illegal activity. He said she had embezzled $800,000 from Goldfinger. As part of the money laundering investigation, authorities said that Goldfinger had made over $9 million in 2002 and upwards of $160 million in 2007. According to the FBI, this was 
to monitor the flow of money to the business to ferret out and uncover illegal money-transmitting activity. On February 26, 2008, five months before Pam was murdered, Jim and Goldfinger were indicted on federal charges of operating an unlicensed money-transmitting business. That indictment was sealed, not made public, and Pam was not named in the indictment. So according to friends and family, she had no idea this was going on. But during her accounting process in the divorce, Pam found out that Jim and Goldfinger were being targeted by the FBI and the IRS in this massive investigation. And then Pam made a fateful decision. Pam's friends said that at that point, she told her lawyer to contact federal prosecutors, basically to deliver the message that she wanted to cooperate with any government investigation into Goldfinger. Her attorney at the time contacted officials and delivered the message that Pamela wants to come in. Tragically, she would never get the chance to do that. But after that, people close to Pam say that she was scared. According to the Los Angeles Times, she told a neighbor that she believed her life was in danger. Her brother, Scott, told the newspaper, she said, if you don't hear from me, something is wrong. The government moved to seize Goldfinger's assets, and the company officially closed in 2008. Jim denied any wrongdoing. He claimed that all of his actions with the company were totally legal. Now we know from other red-collar cases that the point when a white-collar and potential red-collar criminal figures out that someone is planning to reveal their fraud is the most dangerous time for the victim. Often, white-collar investigators don't seem to realize that these potential witnesses need protection. After Pam's murder, the FBI unsealed the indictment. They arrested Jim on charges of operating an unlicensed money-transmitting business. He pleaded not guilty. But he was denied bail. So with Jim behind bars, prosecutors worked to build their case. Then the case took another very strange turn. While he was behind bars, Jim started talking to a fellow prisoner, a man named Sean Smith, whose rap sheet included cocaine charges and a hit and run. Sean Smith contacted authorities and agreed to cooperate with him. He said he would wear a wire. Investigators told him not to lead the conversation in any way, just to have a normal chat with Jim and see if he would talk to him about what happened with Pam. On the audio recordings, Jim can be heard saying that he wanted to kill Pam himself, but he pretty much knew he wouldn't be able to get away with it. And he can be heard laughing with Sean about the fact that the three hitmen had botched the job. Jim said there were lots of places where they could have killed Pam with no witnesses and no camera. Instead, he griped about the fact that they chose a public parking garage with surveillance footage. Then he can be heard telling Sean that he needs to clean up the mess because he didn't want to wind up in the death chamber. Then Jim did something even crazier. He asked Sean if it would be possible to get his help taking out a hit on the hitman. He asked Sean if he knew someone who could take care of his problem. He allegedly asked him to get a real, more professional hitman to kill Joey Moya. He told Sean that he had paid Joey Moya to kill his wife. Then he said Joey Moya's niece's boyfriend, Gabriel Marquez, had been involved. Then there was the third guy, the tall guy, who actually stabbed Pam to death. 
he was a 23-year-old former gang member named Stephen. So he asked Sean if he knew someone who could get rid of Joey. At this point, Sean said that he did know someone. He made up a hitman who he called Tony. So detectives say that at this point, Jim said that he wanted to hire Tony. He even drew a map for Sean's fictional hitman so that he could find Joey's house. Now detectives had the name of the other two guys. Soon, they figured out that cell phones for all four men, Jim, Joey, Gabriel, and Stephen, had all pinged in Century City in the area of the parking garage on the day that Pam was murdered. Detectives had also run the license plates and tracked down the SUV, which had been returned to the Avis rent-a-car in Camarillo. Even though the car had been steam-cleaned, testing revealed that there were traces of blood inside the car that were a match to Pam. And a fingerprint found on the parking garage ticket matched Stephen Simmons. Phone records also showed that Jim had been texting Joey right before and right after the murder, even though the messages had been deleted from Jim's phone. Now, Jim's lawyers fought these alleged jailhouse confessions. They said they had basically been entrapment, that Sean had sunk his claws into Jim, and that his client was confused. From this point on, his lawyer would do everything that he could to get those conversations excluded, since they were a disaster for Jim with the jury. The lawyer said his life was upside down, and he was in a tiny cell with a scumbag, and his wife had been murdered. He tried to affect the aggressiveness and the macho attitude that his cellmate projected onto him. His lawyer also mentioned another suspect at trial. He said that Mary Mercedes, Jim's sister, had a motive for killing Pam. The lawyer said that Joey called Mary shortly after Pam's body was found and implied that it could have been her and not Jim who orchestrated the murder. According to friends and family, Mary and Pam had never really gotten along. In Jim's divorce filings, Mary wrote that behind the scenes, Pam had an intense hatred of her husband. She quoted Pam as saying, All I have to do is say that he hurts me or my daughters and he will be history. Mary also said that Pam had told her, Everything about him disgusts me. But prosecutors hit back. They said they believed that Jim was the mastermind behind Pam's murder. He was the one with the motive. And they said that he had paid Joey Moya around $25,000 for the hit. They were able to connect the dots at trial. They presented evidence that Jim asked another guy who he worked with to withdraw $26,000, put it in a cardboard box, tape up the box, and hand it to Joey shortly before the murder. Then prosecutors say that Joey went on to hire a man named Gabriel Marquez, who then got his acquaintance, Stephen Simmons, involved. Stephen had been the one who actually stabbed Pam. Prosecutors said that Jim's motive, no surprise, was money. He was afraid that she would take half his fortune in the divorce. But the real motive was the fact that Pam had learned about Jim's fraud. She was scared, but she was still fighting for information. And she planned to share that information with investigators. Pam was going to tell them everything. Jim knew the clock was ticking. Joey Moya, Gabriel Marquez, and Stephen Simmons were all arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Joey Moya had been like a member of the family. So Jeanette told Deadly Rich that in a way, hearing about what Joey had done to her mother was such a huge betrayal that it was almost a bigger hurt than her dad. 
She was trying so hard to make his life better, she said. All three men were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Jim was charged with capital murder, and in 2011, his trial started. It took a month, and like everything else in this case, it was full of drama. The Ventura County Star reported that a juror and an alternate juror were removed from the trial after they allegedly improperly discussed the case. Superior Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy got totally frustrated with Jim. I have never in all my years had a case like this, she said. She said that Jim was trying to get a mistrial declared. She alleged that he sent anonymous emails and was behind phone calls and letters to the court alleging misconduct by jurors. But the prosecution went on and presented their case. The prosecution said that Jim had ordered the hit on Pam because he was terrified that she would cooperate with prosecutors. In his opening statement, Deputy District Attorney Eric Harmon said, In the next few days, you will hear a story, a love story where boy meets gold. It's that love of gold that caused this man to have his wife murdered for financial gain. In May 2011, Jim was found guilty of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Jurors agreed with the special circumstance allegations of murder for financial gain and murder while lying in wait. The jury recommended the death penalty. Judge Kennedy called the case a most disturbing case because of its planning and sophistication, even though it was not carried out in a sophisticated manner. In sentencing Jim to death, the judge called the killing a cold-blooded, vicious, and brutal murder. And ironically, it was the video of Jim that was meant to give him an alibi and rule him out as a suspect that ended up being kind of the final nail in his coffin. Because prosecutors, the jury, and the judge all saw that video. They all noticed that Jim was in the same area as Pam while she was being murdered. Everyone else ran toward Pam and tried to help her while Jim could be seen on video nearby. He didn't even turn his head. He was, the judge said, totally immune to the screams of his wife, the mother of his child. When his wife had her throat slit, Jim was sitting on a park bench in the sun and, according to the judge, texting on his cell phone like he doesn't have a care in the world. In November 2011, Jim was sentenced to death. Pam's brother said he believed the sentencing was fair, saying that it had been hard for the family to relive what happened to Pam in court. Jim's attorney filed several appeals, but in April 2020, the California Supreme Court upheld Jim's conviction. Jim and Pam's daughter, Jeanette, went to live with Pam's brother, who became her legal guardian. He testified that he believed she is the biggest victim of all this. Jeanette told Dudley Rich that she still has conflicting feelings about her father. She said it took her a long time to accept her dad's guilt. And even now, she says she does not believe in the death penalty. Even though she feels rage for what he did to her mother, she does not hate her dad. She comes across as a very brave and well-spoken young woman who would have made her mother proud. The FBI decided not to pursue the criminal investigation into Goldfinger Incorporated. So, in the end, Jim was never convicted for the alleged Ponzi schemes or as part of any federal charge. So what happened to the stolen money? The feds have been trying to get it back for years, and they've had some success. 
According to federal prosecutors, authorities obtained information from eBullion and Goldfinger's encrypted computer servers in Switzerland. From there, they were able to identify around 1,000 eBullion account holders and to find out how much they had in their accounts. The fraud really did extend to all reaches of the globe. Because a lot of Australian citizens were victims, the Australian authorities got involved. And in July 2012, an Australian court signed off on an agreement to forfeit approximately $13.3 million that was obtained when Jim's precious metals were liquidated. On July 30th of that year, there was a U.S. forfeiture judgment entered. It awarded approximately $3.6 million in bank funds and $5.4 million worth of gold, silver, and platinum that had been previously seized by the U.S. government. More money was dispersed over the years. $1.8 million in 2014, around $12 million in 2015. And it took 10 years. But in 2019, according to NBC Los Angeles, federal prosecutors finally announced that they had made the final civil judgment. They returned around $9.8 million to roughly 1,000 victims who'd invested with eBullion. And this case may be over, but gold scams continue. Recently, AARP did a story about the fact that these scams are on the rise again and that seniors are often the ones being targeted. The scammers do everything from send fake gold to invent fake storage places that don't exist. Sometimes they bait and switch. They show you one thing and they give you something of lower quality. The article recommended that anyone considering investing in gold contact the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission to check a company's reputation. As with so many of these scams, sometimes the most common sense advice is the best. Do your homework. Don't believe anyone who pressures you into buying anything because they say supplies are limited. And, as always, with this or anything else, be very suspicious of anything that seems too good to be true. Side note, this is a good tip to follow, whether you're buying gold or getting into a new relationship. In 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a moratorium on executions in the state. So Jim is no longer on death row. He remains behind bars at San Quentin State Prison. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh.